Okay, just two announcements. The first one is that we're going to, looks like we're going to make it. We're going to have our uh, men's camp out this year. That doesn't look like there's going to be rain, so it looks pretty good. So uh, we'll be going out there sometime whenever you get out there, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, probably eat around 7 or so, and um, and then camp out, have a good time around the campfire, all those kinds of things. So we'll have a great time of fellowship and talking about the Lord. And then um, the other thing is Camp Arete needs a registrar to help. It's a part-time volunteer position primarily to take care of registrations. And that is, um, uh, just contact Jeff Phipps about that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, prepared to study the Word, and to think about its application tonight. And uh, so after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, just such a tremendous privilege that we have access to you through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And Father, we're just thankful that that we have you to depend on, that you are a faithful God and you are always dependable. Great is your faithfulness. And Father, we are so thankful for that. Now, Father, we pray that tonight as we look at the Word and look at what you have to teach us, that we might be uh, able to pay attention, focus, concentrate, and that we will be responsive to God the Holy Spirit as he uh, opens our our minds to areas where we need to apply these things. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are continuing our study in Judges, looking at the basic theme of Judges, which is that moral relativism destroys a nation. And we are right in the middle of that word, moral, moral relativism. And I just thought I would begin tonight by uh, letting you hear some of the headlines that have come across in various emails that I get, keeping up with what's going on in the world today. And you can just figure out where we are in relation to where Israel was in the period of the Judges. So the first headline is Pagan Idolatry and the Democrats' Quest for Unfettered Sex. Then the next headline, if you didn't like that one, is Charity Gale. She is a music worship leader, I think. Charity Gale and the Self-Idolatry of Modern Worship Music. And then one for you environmentalists, all for Gaia, Earth Day and Total Transformation for a Post-Christian World. And then some of you may know who Tim Keller is. He is a, a pastor and a evangelical in a broad sense of the term. And this headline is Tim Keller's Subversive Social Justice Takeover 
of the evangelical church. For those of you who don't know, Charisma Magazine is one of the popular magazines in the charismatic movement, been around for, for many decades. And so in there, they have a news column in the magazine. So this says, Charisma News praises pro-gay singer on American Idol who sang Lauren Daigle's You Say and Prayed with Judges. And then the next headline is the slow drift towards LGBTQ inclusion in evangelical churches. Then it gets better. Gay PCA, that is one of the most conservative Presbyterian denominations in the country. So this is the Presbyterian Church of America, a gay PCA youth pastor who is sexually attracted to a friend moves in with him to start a family. And then in light of uh, lots of things that are going on, especially with one of our uh, hometown ladies, Beth Moore, we have Charisma Magazine. There's a whole uproar going on, if you don't know about it, about women preachers. I mean, it's just, just rocking the evangelical ship in America. Charisma Magazine says... Paul's words in the New Testament about women preaching are evil. Next headline is the spiritual damage caused by the rebellion of women preachers in the church. And then last but not least, no women, you are not called to preach. So if you just take a collage of those headlines, you will see that we are right in the middle of a perverse form of Christianity today. And that is pretty much reflected in those headlines. And this is going on. The Southern Baptist Convention is is on the verge of implosion because of the uh, woke Marxists that are coming out of the woodwork, including the president of the SBCA and a lot of shenanigans that are going on there. You have other problems in all kinds of other evangelical groups, and the term evangelical itself has come to mean virtually nothing. Uh, There's no good news among any of these evangelicals. So that's the problem with what happens when a culture... Uh, dives deeply into moral relativism is it affects everyone because the people who are getting saved are getting saved out of a moral, morally relative culture and they bring that baggage with them into the, quote, church. But when there's no teaching of the Word of God, there's just emotion and feeling then what you end up with is just the world that is sort of baptized as Christian and meets on Sunday morning for a Jesus pep rally. And nobody learns anything, and they're just as unstable as Christians as they were as unbelievers. And this is exactly what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. So let's open our Bibles to... Judges chapter 2, which we barely started last week. Judges chapter 2. And as we look at the opening verse, 
we are immediately confronted with the personage of the angel of the Lord, which is where we started and stopped in terms of looking at the text last Tuesday night. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So last week we looked at the uh, meaning of the angel of the Lord and identifying who the angel of the Lord is. Now, this may surprise some of you because I know you don't get out much and you probably haven't visited too many other churches or been in a lot of situations where you've had other uh, people from other frameworks teaching the Bible. But it might surprise you that there's a minority of conservative theologians, Bible teachers, Hebrew professors who do not believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I first ran into that with somebody who was a graduate of a Christian liberal arts school, and I checked with several of their uh, alumni today that I know of, and they didn't know of anybody who taught this there, but I ran into this when I was in high school, that a man who otherwise was... Uh, really solid in the word and, and meant a lot to me uh, in my spiritual life and and was a great mentor, but he did not believe that the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. So my first two debates as a high school kid with a knowledgeable adult believer were over uh, whether or not there was an interlude between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and whether or not the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So this is, uh, and then today I picked up a commentary by a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I'm reading through this section, and he has uh, two pages dealing with the role of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and never once gets close to identifying the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament as the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And I just do not understand. And he doesn't give an argument. I mean, he doesn't even act as if that is the dominant interpretation by far, probably among uh, conservative biblicists. It's about 95, 98% at best uh, or at worst. So, I mean, I just don't. So I know somebody's going to ask me later and they'll say, "Well, well, how do they get around this? I don't know. I'm going to tell you now, I don't know. He doesn't say. That's how they get around it. They just don't talk about it. And so I just thought, well, just by way of review, be, we should be reminded of some of these passages. We looked at this last time with the angel of the Lord uh, in relation to um, the faithfulness of God in, uh, uh, I mean, excuse me, the, the angel of the Lord in Judges 2 that the angel of the Lord that comes up from Gilgal to Bochim says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your, to your fathers. And in Exodus 23, God is communicating to Moses and says, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you 
to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now, if that was all we had, then we might think this was an angel as opposed to a title for the uh, pre-incarnate ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to Israel. And then in verse 21, God says, Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. Now, that's a pretty clear statement. Now, if that was all we had, then you wouldn't want to hang your hat on that one statement. But we've studied this so many times. John, the Gospel of John, talks about believing in Christ's name. And that's not just believing in the label uh, Yeshua of Nazareth. It is believing in the essence, the claims of who he is as the second person of the Trinity. And so the idea in the Old Testament and Hebrew culture was that if uh, when you were talking about the name of somebody, it reflected the essence of who they were. So when God says, my name is in him, he is saying, my essence is in him. Now, as we uh, look at this passage in two one, we looking at the phrase. This is the Malach uh, Yahweh, which is the angel or the messenger of the Lord. And we looked at a few passages. I'm just going to remind you of a couple of them. But this is when Hagar is. Uh, finds out that she is going to have a son, and so she's going to leave, and she's being kicked out by by Sarah. And God appears to her and tells her that he's going to provide for her and provide for her son. And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Now, prior to this verse, the personage that is talking to her is identified as the angel of Yahweh. And here, uh, in when we get down to the end of the story, like the punchline, we find out that the angel of Yahweh who's talking to her is, uh, is Yahweh. She says, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also, ha- have I also here seen him who sees me? So she recognizes that it is God, it is Yahweh who has been speaking to her. So that identifies uh, the angel of Yahweh with uh, with Yahweh. Genesis forty eight sixteen. I didn't put this one up last week, but Jacob says uh, in forty eight sixteen he says the angel who has redeemed me from all evil and the context is talking about the angel of the Lord so the angel of the Lord is his redeemer that seems pretty clear to me that it is not just one of the uh, myriad of angels in Exodus three two we have the angel of the Lord appears in the uh, in the uh, flaming bush to Moses, and then is described by the time you get to verse 4. So when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, 
So this is referring to the angel of Yahweh in verse 2 as Yahweh in verse 4. And in Judges, we see that when the angel of the Lord appears to that uh, mighty warrior Gideon in Judges chapter 6, Gideon will will not only uh, bring a sacrifice and offer a burnt offering to the angel and is not rebuked for that, but then by the time you get down to uh, verse verses 14 and 16, the, the angel is just simply referred to as Yahweh. Then the Lord turned to him and said, and in verse 16, and the Lord said to him. So uh, it becomes very clear from these passages that the angel of the Lord is not just another one of the angels. The same thing happens with the father of Samson, uh, Manoah. He recognizes that the angel of the Lord who has appeared to him, uh, that he says he is going to offer an offering to Yahweh, to this angel. So that's just a reminder that the angel of the Lord here is very important to identify. It takes us back to Exodus and to understanding the role of the angel of the Lord as the one who is leading Israel through the wilderness through those those 40 years, out of Egypt, through the, the Red Sea, uh, down to Sinai, and then through the wilderness to Kadesh Barnea, and then for the next, uh, the next 40 years. So as we look at the verse, the angel of Yahweh came up, from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, why? what's going on here? What is the significance of Gilgal? This takes us back again as we ask this question to Exodus chapter uh, 14 to understand the significance of Gilgal. This is a very important location in the history of Israel. And so we have to understand that in the Bible, when you have these geographical locations mentioned, God has connected certain aspects of his revelation to Israel or his revelation that is for all of mankind to specific geographical locations and to events that you can peg to that. And so this is talking about what happens uh, at Gilgal. So for background, in Exodus fourteen nineteen, we read, And the angel of God. Now when there's a shift from angel of uh, Yahweh to angel of God, sometimes it may refer to a different person, but it doesn't here because it in the previous verses that we looked at, God said he's going to send his angel uh, the angel of the Lord to lead the Israelites uh, out of Egypt. And so now that same personage is simply described as the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel. Now he changes his position in relation to the camp and he moves and goes behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So this is when they are leaving. They've got their backs to the Red Sea, and now they've been they've been led by the angel of God 
uh, signified by the pillar of cloud, and they, they've had to halt because of the Red Sea, and now he changes his position to take his position between them and the pursuing Egyptians. Uh, Exodus twenty three twenty. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So you could go to those, either of those passages, and some do, and they don't want to make this identification, but you have to look at the broad picture. And this is directed towards uh, understanding Gilgal. So in Exodus thirty three fourteen, God is having a conversation with Moses, and Moses is asking God questions about how they're going to know where they're supposed to go in the in the desert. And God said, "My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest." Then Moses, then he that is Moses, said to him, "If your presence does not go with us." Don't bring us up from here. If we don't have you leading us, we don't want to go anywhere. Moses understands that they won't get where they need to go unless God is directing them. And he goes on to say, For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So it's very clear here that the God says this is my presence, what he is talking about is uh, the angel that he has promised uh, earlier that would lead them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And then we find them arriving in the promised land and crossing the river Jordan. Moses has died. He's gone up to Mount Ebal and he, I mean, excuse me, uh, Mount Nebo and he has died. And now we read in Joshua four nineteen and 20, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. Now it's not called Gilgal yet, so this is an anachronism. It, it, chapter 5 tells us why they call it Gilgal. But it, it, the loca- so they know the location, Uh, They identify it as such in verse 19. And then they set up these 12 stones. These are called standing stones. And uh, sooner or later, I've got some pictures that I will show you that have been discovered in various archaeological digs. Of course, they don't stand for 4,000 years or 3,000 years, so they've been knocked over and they have to raise them up again. So they set up these 12 stones which they took from the Jordan, and Joshua sets them up at Gilgal. Now, this is sets the stage for what happens at Gilgal. There will be a covenant renewal here at Gilgal that is signified by the fact that all of these males that have been born while they since they left Egypt have to be circumcised before they can go any further into the land. And circumcision is the sign of what, which covenant? Pop quiz time. It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It gets further regulations in the Mosaic covenant, and a lot of people get confused because of Galatians where you're talking about the legalists, the Judaizer legalists who are coming along and saying that that, Christ, that that Christian men have to also be uh, be circumcised, 
in order to get the blessing from God, and they're just not clear yet on the distinction between Jew and Gentile, number one, and number two is that uh, circumcision as a ritual for the church is not, uh, not in effect. It's still in effect, though, for Israel, not in relation to the Mosaic law, because Christ abolished that on the cross, it's in effect because of the Abrahamic covenant as a sign that they are a physical descendant of Abraham. So here's a map that shows us the location of Gilgal. This is the Dead Sea here, the blue in the center of the screen. And on the right side, on the east side, this is the present kingdom of Jordan, did y'all watch the news that they, they foiled a, an attempted coup, a, a coup against, uh, uh, what's his name, um, the king of Jordan? So um, that happened, they got wind of it early and put it down, but that happened night before last. So you come up the, the east side of the Dead Sea, and you come to... Uh, This area here, this is where uh, it's marked on the map as Shittim, but this is generally the area of Mount Nebo. Some of you have been there. Uh, And you cross, they crossed over the Jordan. And just as you cross over the Jordan, it's not even 10 miles. It's like about maybe three or four miles to Jericho. And just outside of Jericho is Gilgal. Now here's an inscription not from that area, but not far away from Mount Gerizim, which is the uh, proto-Hebrew for Yahweh, the proto-Hebrew alphabet uh, for Yahweh, uh, from the angel of the Lord. So you can still get to Gilgal today. It's marked on the highway markers so you don't get lost. And this is the inviting territory. This is the aerial uh, photograph of the area. And you can see it looks pretty brown because once you get out of the lower river plain here, it's just dry dirt over here. And this is modern modern uh, Jericho. Uh, this is Old Testament Jericho located here. Here's the Jordan River running this way. Uh, the, the mountains on the far side are over in Jordan. And this is where they believe Gilgal was located. Of course, that has been somewhat covered over by the modern city of Jericho. So the people come up. They set up the 12 stones that they've taken from the Jordan. And then they are told by the angel of the Lord who meets them there, this becomes their headquarters. This becomes... Uh, their base camp, and several times in Joshua, they're going to uh, re- uh, reassemble there, and the angel of the Lord will give them instructions. He is the commander-in-chief for their invasion and conquest of the of the uh, promised land. And so you have references in Joshua 9, 6, and in Joshua 10, 6 through 9, and uh, also in chapter 14, 6, mentioned several times also in uh, Joshua chapter 10. But God tells them that in order for them to go any further, that they have to, they have to uh, 
have their their young men, all those who are born during the last 40 years, they have to be circumcised because they have to renew the covenant, and it's a covenant, covenant renewal ceremony there at, at Gilgal. And so we read in Joshua 5, 8, and 9, so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So this is a pun. If you read this in, a, in Hebrew, you would be chuckling at this. Gilgal is from the root meaning to roll away. And so it's formed on that, on that particular verb. So people would chuckle at this as, a, as a, one of many uh, word plays that you have in the Old Testament. But that's the significance of Gilgal. It is the uh, place of assembly to get orders from the angel of the Lord. And it, they came back after, after Jericho, after I, after other uh, combat missions. They would come back there and get their their marching orders. And then in Joshua 5.13, it came to pass when Joshua, Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So this is really the angel of the Lord who is appearing as a man, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 15, we read, Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Now, this is the last time they've seen the angel of the Lord or during these appearances at Gilgal. Now, in Judges 2.1, the, uh, the angel of the Lord is going to appear to them and speak to them, and it's not a good thing. Why has the angel of the Lord left Gilgal and come to this place. Now, it, they haven't called it Bochim yet, and the suggestion by a number of scholars that uh, just it's just sort of speculative is that this is uh, based on some of the other things said about this in the text, that this is probably near Bethel. And so uh, the angel of the Lord says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. Now this identifies him as the same personage that we saw mentioned several times in Exodus where God said, I will, my presence will be with you. I will send my angel before you. These were promises of God that God faithfully fulfilled. That even though there were, even though Israel disobeyed him, uh, at Kadesh Barnea and did not go into the land because they didn't trust God other than Caleb and Joshua. 
And even though there were numerous acts of rebellion against Moses and against Aaron and Miriam, and in fact at one point Miriam and Aaron are leading a rebellion against Moses, and so you have this just catastrophe working its way through the wilderness, but God never left them, God never abandoned them, God was always faithful to his promise. And so he is, uh, there's a reminder here uh, from the angel of God's faithful acts in the past. Even though Israel has been unfaithful and disobedient, God has been faithful to his promises and he has not abandoned Israel. The background for these uh, these assertions is found in Exodus chapter 34 as well as in Joshua chapter 23. And in this verse, he's reminding, um, in verse 2, he's reminding them of the two basic commands underlying the instructions for going into the uh, into the promised land. He says, and as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. So they weren't to make any kind of covenants. They weren't to make marriage covenants. They weren't to make peace treaties. They weren't to do anything. And yet, as we saw in our study of chapter 1, uh, the different tribes had difficulties uh, conquering the, the Canaanites in their territory. So they entered into alliances with them. They entered into peace treaties. And th- the reason they failed wasn't because they didn't have the uh, they didn't have the proper. Uh, y'all hearing that? From, oh, uh, anyway, that it was that, that, that they didn't have the right technology, the right uh, armament, the right weapons, the right tactics. It was because they were disobedient to God. God was going to fulfill his his promise to defeat their enemies and it had nothing whatsoever to do with their technology their skill their their generalship anything like that it was trusting the lord to give them their their victory but they they violated these two principal commands the first one is that they made these uh treaties with the inhabitants of the land and the second thing they were supposed to do was to tear down their altars they were to just completely demolish all of their worship centers. They were to tear down all of their churches. They were to destroy them and reduce them to nothing. They were to take all of the little idols, all of the teraphim and other forms of uh, idols that they had in these places and destroy them because God had warned them that if you don't destroy everything, then this is going to be a, something that will entice you, something that will tempt you, and this will be your downfall. So they are told that they have to uh, destroy absolutely everything. In um, Deuteronomy 7, 2, and 3, we saw God's instructions, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them, uh, totally destroy total annihilation. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their sons, nor take their daughter to your son. God understands the influence that takes place in a relationship, in a friendship, in a romantic relationship, in a marriage. 
uh, and God says he's not just being mean. He's not keeping something from them. He knows that if you, they don't do this, then this is going to open the door for compromise, which we looked at last time. And little compromises eventually lead to big compromises, and the end result is the destruction of their spiritual life, which is exactly what happened to Israel. They were warned about this in Exodus 23, in verse 24, again, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do anything, uh, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them, completely break down their sacred pillars. And verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Verse 33, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, surely it will, remember this word, it will be a snare to you. You're going to be trapped. And this is going to destroy you no matter how wonderful you think they are. So this is just repeated again and again. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 uh, verse 2, When the Lord God delivers them to you, you shall conquer and utterly destroy them. So again and again, God is making this point to them and repeating his instructions uh, time and time again. But as we've seen, Israel compromised for whatever reason, whether they just really didn't want to annihilate every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites or whether they were uh, because they were squeamish about it and they were already uh, backing off from it, God didn't give them the victory. And so we're going to learn exactly what God's uh, discipline for that is going to be as we go through this chapter. And God says to them, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And there's several times you find this phrase in Scripture when God appears to Adam and Eve in the garden, what have you done? It's not that God doesn't know what they've done. He's asking a question to get them to think about and to focus on what it is that they have done in disobedience. And in verse 3, we read, Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now, when we look at this verse, you you will notice. Oh, I didn't get that. It didn't hold when I copied it over. But the word "thorns" in your Bible is in italics because it's not in the original text. And there's some debate as to uh, what should go there. And uh, the thorns is put there for very good reason because of statements in Numbers thirty three fifty five. And in uh, Joshua 23.13, in Numbers 33.55 we read, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And it has thorns in the, in the text there. Thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. And in Joshua 23:13, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes 
until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So this is the warning. Now God is going to leave them there to be a a disciplinary tool uh, to get the Israelites to focus on on God. And so we come then to Judges 2, verse 4, and we read, So it was when the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. They wept. Now, they're weeping for one of probably two reasons. Uh, Possibly some of them are weeping because they know they have disobeyed God and they are genuinely, truly uh, repentant, changing their mind. They realize they have done wrong and that they should be obedient. But the vast majority of them, from what we see in their history, were probably just weeping because they got punished. If you're parents or grandparents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, a lot of times kids uh, will cry and they will act as if they'll never do it again, but it's only because they don't like the fact that they, A, got caught and B, got punished, and it's not because they really understand that what they did was a wrong thing. And we've all done that in relation to sins, in relation to God. And so they are weeping, and it's just emotion. And we live in a generation today, actually this has been going on for at least 60 years, since the end of World War II, there has been a gradual transformation in this in this country, shifting away from rational thought to emotion as the primary means of decision-making. And you see this in lots of different ways in our culture. We see it in the advertising campaigns of all kinds of products. They appeal to emotions. They, they, they use visual images. Once television came along, you have all these uh, positive visuals that are there that are going to uh, give very, very positive associations to people. And so if, if we see these people liking that product, then it must be okay. And all that is is an actor, and he doesn't know whether the product's any good or not. He's just, but his presence makes us feel good. And it's, I was watching something the other night and saw uh, Tom Selleck was hawking um, reverse mortgages. And here's someone that baby boomers look to. He's conservative. He's respectable. Who did it before him? Andy Griffith. You know, there's always somebody who's got that that uh, respect and reputation, and so people want to trust them. They tell you this is a good deal, and people just buy it. It f- makes them feel good. And we just had an election, and I, it, it doesn't apply to just this election. This was an outstanding example. But people made many decisions one way or the other on the basis of just emotion and appearances. They didn't base decisions based on facts, based on policy, based on... uh, It was very clear that uh, when um, uh, Biden was running that he would end up with almost the same uh, people in his cabinet and advisors as 
uh, has existed under the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, Trump, with all of his tweets, there were people, oh, I just don't like him. And now I've read several things that suggest or indicate there's buyer's remorse because they didn't uh, think very much about what Biden was going to do. And now we're losing civil liberties and churches have shut down and uh, many other things that may or may not be attributable directly to him, but they're certainly attributable to those and the party he's a part of. And so the bottom line I'm just communicating is people in our generation make decisions based on emotion. They they buy a car based on emotion. They They get certain jobs based on emotion. They go to certain universities or colleges or whatever based on based on emotion and not thinking clearly about the pros and the cons and the strengths and the weaknesses and what and above all what do i think god would have me to do that rarely enters into the decision making process in most practical decisions unless somebody's backs up against the wall and then they start thinking well maybe i ought to pray about this because i certainly can't figure it out on my own well you, the first thing you do is you seek the lord's guidance and that doesn't mean he's going to speak to you or give you liver quiver or anything like that, but that he will, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, if you trust him, he will make your paths straight. So that's the starting point. And, and based on biblical truth, the use of our God-given rational abilities, then we make decisions. But uh, we see this also in the charismatic movement. It's all emotion. How do you know what God wants you to do? Well, I just feel like he wants me to do this. I prayed about it, and I felt so good about this option, and the next day this thing happened, I knew what God wanted me to do. Really. I didn't know God was communicating anymore other than through his word. But they make all kinds of mistakes. I could get up here. I know so many stories about different people who made such bad decisions based on emotion. And that's exactly what's going on here. When you get away from the Word of God and you're no longer focused on truth, which is propositional, a propositional truth is a technical term that comes out of logic. A proposition is a statement that can either be verified or falsified. It's not a question. It's not a command. It's a statement that purports to be a statement of fact. And that's what the Bible is filled with, is propositions that God is true. The Bible is the word of God, that human beings are sinners, that sin is a problem between man and God, and that sin has to be dealt with. And the only one in the universe who can do that is God, because no finite human being can pay the penalty for sin. No spiritually dead human being can pay the penalty for sin. And so there must be a divine man, a God-man, to solve the problems, uh, the problem of sin. And those are propositions. But people don't want propositions. They want to be with somebody who makes them feel good. They want to hear all the emotion from the pulpit, all of uh, all the emotional appeals and everything, and let that move them so they feel better about themselves. And no- nothing has changed. 
And so that's what happens here. The people lift up their voices and they weep. And then they called the name of the place Bochim, which is from the Hebrew word for weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Is this a genuine sacrifice or not? The writer doesn't tell us. But in light of the context, we're left to wonder how uh, sincere they are, as if sincerity really solves the problem. But have they truly changed their mind? Have they truly uh, repented? That's the biblical meaning of the word repent. Or are they just trying to get back in God's good graces so they can keep on doing what they want to do? And then we're told in verse 6, in summary, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Now, one thing that is seen in this passage that should be of great comfort to us is that it doesn't stand out, but it is embedded in what the angel says in verses 1 and 2, what God is saying, and that is that God is faithful. God has performed his promises, he's performed his word, and if you would trust him, he will bring it to pass. But they didn't trust him. So the first thing we learn about God's God's faithfulness is that it's grounded in his actions. It is consistent in his behavior toward uh, human beings. Uh, He was faithful. What undergirds this is when um, God makes the statement, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, there's debate over what that covenant is. Is that the Mosaic Covenant or is that the Abrahamic Covenant? And I believe it's the Abrahamic Covenant because that's where you have the land promise. And God has fulfilled his promise. He's brought them out of Egypt. He promised to Abraham he would do that. Brought them out of Egypt, brought them to the uh, land that he promised to give them. God has given them victory against all odds. Uh, over the uh, major cities in the promised land. They've defeated Jericho, I, other major fortifications, and now they're in that mopping up stage, and this is when they start failing uh, to trust God. But God has demonstrated that he's true to his word. Now, when we talk about the faithfulness of God in the Old Testament, there are... Uh, two words that are so close they overlap. One is, and they're both based on the same root, and the root is a word that's very familiar to everyone here, and you have probably said it at least once today, and that is the Hebrew word amen. The verb is aman. Uh, a noun form of it is emuna which refers to God, usually to God's faithfulness. But sometimes it's, it's very close, and you'll see that translators will in some places translate it true, truth, and in other places translate it as faithfulness, because these ideas are very closely connected. If something is true, it is dependable. If something is dependable, it is faithful. There is a consistency there. 
And so you have also another form of that root word is the word that describes the the foundation stones under the massive pillars in the temple. And it gave stability to those columns so that they would not fall down. And that's the idea of faithfulness, someone who is stable, someone who is dependable, someone who is going to always hold you up. And that's the idea. And why is that true? It, wh- wh- why is that going to happen? Because it's true. And so that which is true is that which is dependable. And that is the essential meaning of the concept of, of faithfulness. So we have numerous promises and some that are familiar to all of us that I chose not to put in here because I wanted to bring out some other aspects. But some of these are promises that we need to be reminded of and that we should memorize and that we should claim on a regular basis. God's faithfulness. It's interesting that the first time you have the faithfulness of God mentioned in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Now, his, he, he's given evidence of his faithfulness, his dependability all the way through, but the first time you have this, uh, this word based on Ammon is in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Therefore know that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy Now, that's another important word, and it's a word we're all familiar with. I've mentioned it many times. It's the word chesed. So faithful is the idea of emunah, that which is dependable, that which is reliable, uh, that which you can count on. And mercy often translates, sometimes other words are used, often translates the word chesed, which has to do with God's faithful love, his loyal love, his covenant love. Uh, to Israel. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. That phrase, keeping covenant and mercy for a thousand generations, is what defines what faithfulness is. It is dependable. This is part of a uh, a marriage marriage vows that you pledge to be faithful and loyal. And that is the uh, uh, contractual, and that's what it is. It's a contractual agreement, a covenant between the husband and wife as they are getting married. In Psalm 36, verse 5, we read, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And this is just creating a verbal image of something that is beyond reach. It goes on without end. It is, it is infinite. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. In Psalm 37, verse 3, we read, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Now, this uses another image uh, for us. The idea of feeding on something is the idea of enjoying it, being nourished by it. Uh, When you sit down at a a meal and you talk about, well, we're going to go feed ourselves, you're going to enjoy that and and, uh, be nourished by it. That's the idea. It is God's faithfulness 
that feeds us, that gives us stability, that gives us comfort in the midst of uh, instability, when everything is chaotic around us, when every day we get another set of headlines like those crazy headlines I read at the beginning. And every one of those is linked to a story that is describing current events and things that are going on in churches and things that are going on in the culture at large. And every single day there's another eight or ten headlines of the same uh, of the same kind, but we can feed on God's faithfulness. And we don't have to be uh, tossed to and fro by every news item that comes along like a, like a hurricane and blown all over the place in terms of emotional instability because we're so distraught over the direction that our nation is going. God's still on the throne. God is still faithful. God is still going to provide for us. Uh, We just don't know how it's going to be, but it's not like how we thought it was going to be. And so that's why we're upset, but that God has a different plan in mind, and uh, he's, he's usually got a better plan. And so we have to just relax and trust on him that he will provide uh, stability. And then in Psalm 78, 37, in that section of Psalm 78 is a rehearsal of Israel's failures in the wilderness. And so David writes, for their heart was not steadfast with him. That's this, the generation in the wilderness and this generation after Joshua. Their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But God was faithful. God is always faithful. He never changes. In God, there is no shifting shadow. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, His mercies never fail, as uh, Jeremiah says in Lamentations, great is thy faithfulness. Psalm 89 mentions God's faithfulness again and again. Remember, we spent a whole study going through this uh, fantastic psalm that talks about, uh, that is a prayer based on the Davidic covenant, calling upon God to, to continue to be faithful to that covenant and to rescue Israel and to provide for Israel. Psalm 89.2, mercy, that's chesed, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. And Psalm 89.5, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the, should have been translated, the holy ones, that is among the angels in the heavens. Psalm 89.8, your faithfulness also surrounds you. And then God speaks in verse 24, but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, talking about the one who will fulfill the Davidic covenant, talking about uh, the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 89.33, nevertheless, my chesed, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. Psalm 89.37, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. The New Testament continues to emphasize God's faithfulness. We rely on it every single day. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged 
him faithful who had promised. Those two key words, God promised, he's faithful, he's dependable, he will always fulfill his promise. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful every single time. It doesn't matter It's if it, you've committed that sin 308,972 times, God is not going to say, oh, it's just one too many, I can't do it anymore. He is always faithful and righteous, faithful and just to forgive us those sins. It's his faithfulness. We rely on that all the time. Uh, We look at 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful. God is faithful. He is the one who will do it. He will do exactly as he said he would do. First uh, Corinthians one nine, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So all of God's actions reflect His faithfulness. And then one that should be a verse we all know, uh, probably not, but you should memorize this one. There's no testing or temptation take overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. The first line there is saying you're going to run into all kinds of disappointments and heartaches and problems and temptations and speed bumps and potholes in your life, but God is faithful. Again and again and again, God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never deserts us. God is always faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. You often hear people totally misapply that. They say, well, you know, God's not going to test you beyond your capability. Well, here's your capability. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been identified with him. Uh, You are in Christ. You have access to all of the various spiritual assets that God has provided for you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. Whether you avail yourself or not, they're all there. So God will not test you above what you are able because your ability is defined by your relationship to Christ, which means you you have the potential of being able to handle anything. So don't think of it as a vote of confidence if you go through something really rough. Every believer has all that they need in order to handle any situation. So that verse is saying God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, that's with every test, with the test will also, that means along with it, so you hit a test situation, and God also makes the way of escape, not so you can avoid it, but so that you can bear it, you can endure it, you can handle it. See, this verse is just so great. No matter what I face in life, God has given me everything I need to face and handle that situation with joy and happiness and peace and stability and not let it knock me off balance at all. Then we get to a passage that a lot of people stumble over, have trouble with. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. 
and I've added some things in brackets to make it clear what's going on. He says, this is a faithful saying. The saying begins, for if we died with him, and it is a first-class condition in the Greek meaning, yes, we did die with him. According to Romans 6, 2 through 6, when we trusted Christ as Savior, we were identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you positionally died with him on the cross. So if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That is the overriding promise of these three verses. If we died with him, and you did, if you trusted in him as Savior, you shall, future tense, you shall live with him. That's a promise. Oh, but wait a minute. There can be problems. We have to endure. Yes, that's verse 12. If we endure we shall reign with him. It doesn't say if we endure, we'll go to heaven. It says if we endure, we shall reign with him. That is has to do with our position, our responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. But some people don't endure. Uh, they fall by the wayside and they deny Christ. Like what we'll study on Thursday night, those false teachers that uh, Peter warned about in Second Peter 2.1, the false teachers who denied the Lord who bought them, which indicates that at least some of them were believers, and we'll talk about that when we get there Thursday night. Uh, if we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, that is, rebellious children, if we choose the route of the prodigal son and we go live the rest of our life in a pigsty, he will deny us. But you see, there's a connection between the first line and the second line. The first line is endurance leads to rewards of reigning with him, so denying him leads to the same kind of category. You have to have apples and apples, not apples and oranges. So he's not saying in the second line he will deny us salvation because that's not what's in view in the first line. What's in view in the first line is rewards. So the second line is saying he will deny us rewards and inheritance. These are the people who show up at the judgment seat of Christ and all of their works burned up, yet they enter heaven, yet as through fire. They're saved, they have eternal life, they'll be in heaven, but they won't have any rewards or inheritance in the kingdom. And then the last verse says, if we are faithless, like the Jews in the Old Testament, if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. That's his character, that's who he is. He is always going to be that stability for us. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He keeps his word. He keeps his promise. And then 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God Commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So much is grounded in the fact that God is faithful and he is dependable. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, uh, faithful and true will be written on him. He is the one who is faithful and true. And last 
one more to go after this. When Jesus gave his parting instructions to the disciples, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. So this is the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And there's debate over how to handle the grammar here. It says, as you are going, make disciples. Or it could be that uh, the uh, participle at the beginning picks up its uh, meaning from the uh, main verb, which is a command to make disciples. Either way, it still has basically the same idea that we are commissioned to take the gospel to everybody in the world. And that is what's indicated by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing is what follows after they have trusted Christ as Savior. So it's a figure of speech where the result is put for the cause. And then teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then what's the promise? Lo, I am with you always. Whether you end up in a prison somewhere where you are tortured and beaten so that you can give the gospel to everyone else that's in that prison, or whether you end up as a successful businessman and you are uh, living in uh, a a high-rise in Manhattan, although you probably wouldn't want to live there now, um, that no matter where you are, God puts you there And Christ is with us to carry out the mission, which is to tell others the great news about Jesus Christ. He is with us always. But there's always the sober reminder of what the Israelites experienced. Hebrews 12.5, if we fail, if we are not dependable, if we fail as they did, And uh, the writer of Hebrews says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. God is faithful. That's what was lying behind the discipline that's announced in Judges 2, 1 through 6, is that God is faithful to his covenant, and now there's going to be divine discipline for disobedience because God is faithful. But if they turn back to him, then God will also bless them. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be reminded of your faithfulness as we look at a crazy, chaotic world that seems to be spinning more out of control day after day. We're reminded that you are faithful, that your mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit as we think about this important doctrine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.